Alrighty, welcome everyone to the uh, Logical Belief Ministries podcast. Today we have a uh, special discussion uh, and uh, happening on the topic of uh, the perseverance of the saints with uh, uh, Paul Pavo. Did I say that right? Klaus, it's Pavau. Pavau, okay. So with Paul Pavau and... Um, I found his website, uh, christian-history.org, and he had an article on there on Calvinism. And so I wanted to particularly discuss uh, some of the things that he said about perseverance of the saints. And so I invited him to come on, and he uh, he said that he would join in. So um, at this time, I will give Paul a few moments to go ahead and introduce himself. And then we will jump right into um, our discussion. So go ahead, Paul. Go ahead and make your introduction. Okay. Well, I can make this quick. Um, I became a Christian in 1982. Um, my introduction to Protestant Christianity was a lot of debates and discussions, and it really got me disappointed in what I was seeing, and I really wanted to just find out what's true, what the apostles really handed down to the church. Um, I did a lot of Bible study, a lot of trying to be unbiased and looking at the scriptures and trying to determine how I was going to fit into this Christian world that I had just found. And uh, at one point, I found out that I can read the writings of the second and third century Christians. I started doing that a lot. And uh, <clears throat> my website is because of the reading of the earliest church fathers. And so Jason found that website. And um, pretty much I spend my life trying to live out what I've read in the Bible and in the writings of the early church. And I've been doing that for 25 years. I'm married. I have six children and I help lead a home fellowship here in Memphis, Tennessee. All righty. So uh, the way we're going to do this um, uh, discussion is um, I'm going to open up with a 10-minute uh, opening statement, and then Paul is going to make a 10-minute opening statement, and then after that, we're just going to do a back-and-forth dialogue with each other and uh, discuss this particular topic. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to get the uh, timer up here. Let's pull that up, and I'm going to click on Start. Okay. Alrighty. So why am I here today to have this discussion? Uh, I am here to proclaim and defend the perfect saving work of my Savior, Jesus Christ. The question before us today, while it is framed as, is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints biblical, comes ultimately down to this question. Is Jesus Christ a perfect Savior? Does he, Jesus, actually save a person? Does his atoning work actually accomplish the intentions of the triune God? Does his atoning work save his people from their sins? Matthew 1.21. Did his work buy us peace? Isaiah 53.5. Did he bear the sins of many and so save them from the due penalty for their sins? Isaiah 53.12. Did his work perfect anyone? Hebrews 10.14. Did he cancel the record of debt for us, Colossians 2.14? 
When God the Holy Spirit seals a person and guarantees their inheritance of eternal life, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, and Ephesians 4, 30, does he, the Holy Spirit, actually accomplish this work, or is his work frustrated? The testimony of Scripture is clear. The triune God is perfect in all his acts, Psalm 18, 30, and that he accomplishes everything that he purposes, Isaiah 46, 10. A denial of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is a denial of the perfect work of the triune God and places what is lacking in the work of God to save a sinner in the hands of the sinner himself. The sinner now determines his own salvation and maintains it. This is the epitome of synergism and Pelagianism. The synergist, with his denial of the perseverance of the saints, says that grace is necessary but not sufficient for the salvation of an individual. The person himself makes up what is lacking in the grace of God, the atoning work of Christ, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit to ensure his salvation is both initiated and maintained in and of himself. Salvation is no longer of the Lord, Jonah 2.9. Jesus is not the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, Philippians 1.6 and Hebrews 12.2. Salvation belongs to man. Man authors and finishes his own faith. Let us examine for a moment what the early church fathers had to say about this topic. Was this doctrine simply contrived by the reformers of the 16th century? Before I read these quotes, however, I do want to dispel the myth that there was some sort of monolithic single view of all these doctrines in the early church. Just as today, in the time of the early church, there was a wide variety of views among those who called themselves Christians. The well-known controversies against forms of Gnosticism, the discussions in the early church of the nature and personhood of Christ should dispel that myth. Uh, the first quote I want to uh, uh, read is from Clement of Rome. Clement uh, is the author of a letter to the Corinthians. Uh, and in 1 Clement 8, verse 6, he goes, But if any of those whom God wills should partake of the grace of repentance should afterwards perish, where is his almighty will? Uh, Ignatius of Antioch, on the way to his martyrdom, wrote seven letters to different churches. And his letter to the Ephesians in the Salutation, he writes this. Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the church which is at Ephesus in Asia, deservedly most happy, being blessed in the greatness and fullness of God the Father, and predestined before the beginning of time, that it should be always for an enduring, unchangeable glory, being united and elected through the true passion by the will of the Father and Jesus Christ, our Savior, our God, abundant happiness through Jesus Christ and his undefiled grace. Tertullian, in his Prescriptions Against Heresies, writes, No one is wise, no one is faithful, no one is worthy of honor unless he is a Christian, and no one is a Christian unless he perseveres to the end. Tertullian here is affirming the Apostle John in 1 John 2.19, where he says those that went out from us were never of us. Um, he also says in Deanomy, a treatise on the soul, he says, God forbid that we should believe that the soul of any saint should be drawn out by the devil. He continues on later, for what is of God is never extinguished. Cyprian of Carthage writes, the, uh, in letter 63, he writes, thus there is nothing that can separate the union 
of between Christ and the church, that is the people who are established within the church and who steadfastly and faithfully persevere in their beliefs, Christ and his church must remain ever attached and joined to each other by indissoluble love. Athanasius, that famous uh, champion of the Trinity, in his Discourses Against the Arians, writes in commenting on 1 John 2.19, for that their authors went out from us, it plainly follows, as the Blessed John has written, that they never thought with us. Uh, Augustine, uh, the champion against uh, sovereign grace in the face of Pelagianism, wrote, wrote this: "Of these believers, no one perishes because they were all elected. They were all they were elected because they were called according to the purpose. The purpose, however, not their own, but God's." Obedience, then, is God's gift. To this, indeed, we are not able to deny that perseverance and good, progressing even to the end, is also a great gift of God. As I mentioned before, that the early church was not monolithic. My hope is that we can adhere to the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura and engage in an exegesis of the perfect word of God that is without error and contradiction in our discussion of this topic and not meander around in the morass of the early church. Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that whoever looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. If Jesus would lose one of those who came to him as the result of being given to him by the Father, he has not accomplished his Father's will. God forbid that we should introduce a disunity within the Godhead to maintain our doctrines. In John 6:44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. All those who are drawn by the Father come to Christ, and all who come are raised up on the last day. Jesus tells the unbelieving Jews in John 10, 25, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There are sheep, and there are goats. Goats do not become sheep, and sheep do not become goats. All the sheep of Christ hear his voice. Jesus gives them eternal life, and they will never perish. How weak is the new creation of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if it can again become the old creation. The scriptures teach of the new birth, of being born again in John 3.3, 3, but it does not teach of one becoming unborn again and requiring to be born again. Again, how weak is the regenerating work of the Spirit of God if the one who is born of the Spirit is not empowered by God to persevere to the end? From what I've seen, that Mr. Pavo has written, he will use texts of scripture today that warn against falling away and warn against the consequences of falling away. He then concludes, because these warnings exist, therefore a true Christian can fall away and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is invalidated. What I will demonstrate is that my opponent is committing the logical fallacy of affirming the consequence. 
What he fails to recognize is that God uses these warning passages as the means to persevere his saints because his sheep will hear his voice and heed his warning not to fall away. Those who have a false, non-saving faith do not heed the voice of God and will fall away from the grace promised to those who believe. Those who have fallen away have no hope of salvation, but only eternal condemnation. As John says in 1 John 2.19, those that have gone out from us were never of us, because if they had been, they would have continued with us. Mr. Pavo is assuming his position to be true and using a consequence from his assumption to affirm his assumption is indeed true. This is like affirming that it must have rained outside because the grass is wet. When there could be other reasons, like the sprinkler system was running for the grass being wet, Mr. Pavo assumes that a true Christian can fall away and tries to prove this by affirming the consequent when other reasons, when there are other reasons for warning passages in Scripture, is to persevere the sheep of God, the very doctrine he's denied. His position pits Scripture against Scripture. When Jesus clearly says he loses none of those who come to him, Scripture is clear that those who truly believe, present, active, indicative, eke, possess eternal life. In John 3.36 and John 6.47. All right. The floor is yours. Okay. Okay, so I'm not going to directly respond to what he said because I didn't know what he was going to say, so I've got my 10 minutes prepared. In regard to perseverance... The Apostle Paul tells us four times not to be deceived. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived. He then lists a series of sins, such as sexual sin, theft, and drunkenness. So we know that he is talking about unrighteous behavior, not wrong standing with God. Galatians 6, 7 to 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It then says, sowing to the flesh, excuse me, results in corruption, and sowing to the spirit results in eternal life. In the very next verse, he says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap if you do not lose heart. This passage equates sowing to the spirit with doing good, and it tells us not to lose heart in doing good so that we can reap. What is the context here? What's being reaped here is eternal life, and Paul is saying it requires doing good by sowing to the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 5 to 7 says, You know that no sexually immoral, unclean, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Many American Christians are deceived into believing that greedy people have an inheritance in Jesus' kingdom. It also says that these people are kept out of the kingdom because they do the same things as the sons of disobedience. 1 John 3, 7 tells us not to be deceived into thinking that anyone is righteous unless they are practicing righteous. To quote, it says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one that practices righteousness is righteous just as Jesus is righteous. The one who keeps committing sin is of the devil. Wow, what a scripture. Let me ask you, have you let anyone deceive you into thinking that someone who keeps committing sin is righteous? No, they are of the devil. This ought to motivate us to rescue them, not pretend they are righteous. All these verses warn us not to be deceived. 
They tell us that lying, slandering, greedy, divisive, backbiting, murdering, or selfishly ambitious people will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do not agree that you can tell the righteous from the unrighteous by the way they act, then according to John, you've been deceived. If you believe that greedy, sexually immoral, and unclean people can enter the kingdom of God, then Paul says you have been deceived. If you do not realize that those who continually sin are of the devil, you can't help them. You will not warn and rescue them. Pretending like they are not of the devil is not going to do them any good. At, <clears throat> excuse me, at the end of the letter of James, he tells us that if one of us strays from the truth and we convert him, we will have saved a soul from death. I'm going to assume you know that if you turn a backslider from his ways, you are not saving him from physical death. He's still going to die physically. James is telling you that you are saving him from spiritual death if you get him to repent. Okay, I've given you some simple, easy-to-understand scriptures. People want to make them hard because there are other scriptures that seem to say something different. Those same people want to answer what I've just said with scriptures that they think contradict what I said. What are we doing? Do we think that the scriptures contradict on so important a matter as salvation, and whoever finds the most or strongest verses wins the argument in the end? I'm not going to do that. Here is the description of the course of salvation that matches not only the verses I have produced, but all the ones people generally present to me in response to what I have just said. So here goes. We were all once dead in our sins, walking according to the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. In other words, we were slaves to sin. God, in his mercy, chose to rescue us from our slavery to sin. He did this apart from works because a slave of sin can't offer good works. Ephesians 2 goes on to tell us that we have been saved by grace, a grace we obtained through faith. It tells us that we are new creations, created to do good works that God has prepared for us to do. Excellent. Our slavery to sin is gone. Being created to do good works, it's only natural that we wind up doing good works. God is working in us both to do and want to do his good pleasure, says Paul in Philippians 2.13. So we find that we both want to do good works and we have the power to do them. This is awesome because that is what Jesus wants. According to Titus 2, verses 13 to 14, he died to procure for himself a special people that are zealous for good works. Titus 2 also tells us that these special people have the ability to do those good works because great grace has taught them to, quote, deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, unquote. This is normal Christianity. Everybody agrees with that part, even if they tend to ignore Titus 2, 11 through 14. Here's the part that evangelicals don't know, though all other branches of Christianity do. Now that you have been born again and taught by grace to be godly, you are expected to walk in that grace. In fact, there is a judgment coming for Christians as well as the lost, a judgment without partiality. In other words, if you live like the world, you will be judged like the world. Do the scriptures really say that? They sure do, and it's all over the New Testament. Jesus said in John 5, 28 to 29, that he will call forth the dead 
and the evil will be resurrected to condemnation and those who have done good to a resurrection of life. I hope we all know about the judgment of the sheep and the goats, where those who did good to the sick, hungry, naked, and imprisoned were given eternal life, and those who didn't went into everlasting fire. That's in Matthew 25. In 1 Peter 1.17, Peter tells everyone who addresses God as Father to fear because he will judge us impartially according to our works. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we will appear at the judgment seat of Christ to be judged according to our works, whether good or bad. A lot of denominations try to split up the verses on the judgment in order to show that none of them apply to Christians. That's neither historical teaching nor biblical teaching. The fact is there is nowhere in the scriptures a description of a judgment like the ones like the one evangelicals describe where Christians are judged for their works, but no one is sent to hell. That judgment does not exist. What does exist is Jesus warning the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, that while they have all received garments, only a few have kept those garments undefiled, and only those few will walk with him in white. The next verse says that overcomers will not have their name blotted out of the book of life. This suggests that those who do not overcome will have their name blotted out. So you have been born again, forgiven of your sins, and empowered to live holy, and that happened completely apart from works. So awesome. We have the Holy Spirit, and we are completely new people. Now, what you do with the Spirit and His grace and power will one day be judged, and you will either enter into the kingdom of God and inherit eternal life, or you will be thrown into unquenchable fire. That happens completely based on works. The passages presented by those who disagree with me fit perfectly into this course of salvation. They are always in the past tense, and they all refer back to when we were born again and empowered to live holy. That said, passages pulled from the Gospel of John need further explanation, and I hope we'll have a chance to discuss that, uh, discuss John after this portion of the debate. Finally, since this debate concerns a tenet of Calvinism, I should tell you, a saint, how you can endure to the end and thus make sure you are called and elected. You can do that by diligently adding to your faith virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. According to 2 Peter chapter 1, if you give effort to this, you will never stumble. You can be sure you are called and elected, and you will be granted an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that I'm ending with that. I will tell you one quick thing that might help in our discussion. Uh, you can call me a synergist. That's an accurate description of me. Okay, no problem. All right. So uh, the first thing I want to ask you is you um, <clears throat> quoted 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, Galatians 5, 16 through 24, and Ephesians 5, 5, where you noted that uh, those who do these things and practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is it um, your uh understanding of uh, a reformed view of the perseverance of the saints that we actually believe that those who do those things will inherit the kingdom of God? No, but it is my understanding that you would tell Christians that they are somehow preserved from doing those things. Whereas I would go, that is a warning to us as Christians to beware of entering into those things. Because if we do, 
will fall away from grace. And in the end, that'll mean we're not one of the elect. Okay. In my opening statement, did I not say that those passages were warnings for Christians? Uh, yeah, probably you did. Yeah. Um, and so I said that they were warnings for Christians, and I said because of the grace of salvation that has been given to Christians, will they heed those warnings? I would hope they 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 do. And I would agree that we, we God do. gives us the power to heed those warnings, but the question is, are we able to not heed, heed those warnings? So, so then what you just said there, God gives us the power, but the power that God that gives us through grace is not sufficient to ensure that we will actually persevere and heed those warnings. Is that, is that your position? My position would be that grace doesn't make us do those things. It only empowers us to do those things. Okay, but that power is not sufficient to ensure that a person will actually persevere through those things. So your faith and your trust ultimately is in your own ability to accomplish that, not in the grace that God gives you. My faith is that the grace that God gives me enables me to do the things that he commands, but that it always remains our choice. Okay. Um, on your website, you make a, a statement on there, and you kind of repeated it in our discussion here. So I'm going to read it and ask if you uh, agree with that. It says, it may be unthinkable, a complete violation of our modern traditions, but the fact is that in the early days of the church, no one believed that being born again and possessed by the Spirit of God had anything to do with going to heaven outside of the fact that a spiritual person had a better, much better opportunity to live out the good works that would get them to heaven. That was your statement on your website. Is that correct? Yes. Okay, so I want to read something to you, and I want to ask if you agree with this statement. It says, we can therefore hope in the glory of heaven promised by God to those who love him and do his will. In every circumstance, each one of us should hope with the grace of God to persevere to the end and obtain the joy of heaven as God's eternal reward for the good works accomplished with the grace of Christ. Is that something that you would agree with? I feel like that says exactly what I just said. Do you know what I just read from? Uh, you actually said in the beginning. No, I didn't say what I just read from. Oh, okay. Do you see what I'm holding up? Yeah, Catechism of the Catholic Church. Yes. That is the Roman Catholic view of, uh, of salvation. Now, I noticed on your website that you um, disparage Roman Catholicism a lot. Do you understand that your view of salvation is exactly the same as that of the Roman Catholics? I do understand that my view of justification is extremely close to what the Roman Catholics say. So you would actually agree that you are on the other side of the Tiber River on this discussion. Uh, what, what separated the Reformation from the Roman Catholic Church, you would be on the side of the Roman Catholic Church on this. I would be on the side of the Roman Catholic Church. If you're putting Lutheran Calvin on the other side, yes, I would. I would be on the other side from Lutheran Calvin on the subject of justification. All right. So, um, in uh, let's let's go to uh, John chapter six, verse thirty-five, where Jesus says, "All that the Father gives to me." In verse thirty-seven of John 6:37 All that the Father gives to me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Um do you believe that uh the one who comes to Christ can be cast out? 
No, I believe they can leave. I believe they can they are accepted, they're in the Father's hand, and you can walk away from that. I think okay. the whole book of Hebrews is warning us not to do that. So in the following verse, in verse 39, it says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Are you saying that Jesus can actually lose those that are given to him by the Father? Well, it depends. My My answer would be, Either he's talking about those whom God foreknew and that the people who left were, as First John 2.19 says, were never of us, or, then, or yes, uh, even though it's the Father's will, sometimes people walk away, and so in whatever way, they're lost, yes. So, so you would disagree with Jesus here then, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So you're saying that he can lose something, one who is given to him by the Father. No, I think uh, I don't disagree with him at all. I think he's saying this is my Father's will, that I don't lose any of these. Okay. But he lost Judas, and it's, well, it's clear, I think, if we look around, that you see people who look every bit like Christians, and then they walk well, away. In reference to Judas, do you know what Jesus actually said when he said that he, he says, "I know whom I have chosen," and he said, uh, "And I." Uh, this is in um, Luke. He says, "I know who I am. I have chosen." And then he says, um, he talks about losing Judas in that context. So he was referring to Judas not being one of the chosen. Yeah, that's true enough. But who knew that besides Jesus until the end when he actually uh, came I'm not, do, do you believe that a Reformed person actually believes that we know uh, who is the, are the chosen ones, that we know who the elect are? Well, it depends. I, I think officially the doctrine is that you don't really know if you're elect until you finally made it to the end. But my experience with people who hold to Calvinist doctrines is that they talk and behave like they do know already. I, I think the, yeah, the only... I, actually, I disagree ahead. with your statement there. Uh, uh, reformed people, reformed Christians do believe we can know. It says uh, in... In Romans, it says his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. All through First John, um, John writes saying, I say this, that you may know that you have eternal life. So I believe that we can know personally. What I was actually referring to was not whether I know that I'm saved. I believe that I am saved. I believe I am the elect of God. I have confidence that he who began a good work in me will complete it into the day of Christ Jesus. But I'm speaking of other individuals. The closer I get to know somebody and I can see how Christ and the Spirit has, has changed their life and is growing them in sanctification, I can have a high degree of assurance that they are the elect of God. But it is, it is we, we cannot, we don't know who the elect of God are. Just as Spurgeon said, if, uh, if he could see a yellow stripe down the back of all the elect, he would just preach to the elect. But we don't know who the elect are. So we proclaim the gospel to all people because the gospel is the power of God into salvation. And uh, 
And we can have a personal assurance because his spirit does testify with our spirit. And we have confidence that he who began a good work within us will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So I, I don't think that's kind of a misrepresentation of what uh, the reformed view of perseverance of the saints is. Well, that that may be, quote, the official view. But the fact is that we get in, you know, those warnings they're for us. And when it mm-hmm. says you've got to do these things in order to make your calling and election sure, you know, that's that's where I go. There's it, it's not being applied by the typical, you know, like you're going, hey, that's for other people. I'm I'm confident. I'm assured. I have the witness of the spirit in my heart. So do mm-hmm. I. But I believe that those warnings all apply to me and you both, and that it's good for me to fear the upcoming judgment of God, and that it's entirely possible for me that if I don't continue, that I could fall away and not inherit the kingdom of God. Once again, in my opening statement, didn't I say that those warnings were for Christians? Because that warning is for me. If, if, I, if I fall into 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Galatians 5, 16 through 24, or Ephesians 5, 5, sins and I refuse to repent, I have no promise of eternal life. Well, great, then we're not disagreeing. um, But that is not a violation of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, The the power that I have to actually accomplish and walk in the ways of Christ is entirely all of God. It is nothing of me. It is by his grace alone that I am saved. And that I persevere. My confidence is in him and not in my own efforts. And the fact that I actually, as it says in first, let's actually turn to, that's a great passage, First Corinthians 6, um, uh, 9 and 10. And reading, it says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adult, uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindle, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But what does it go on and say? And such were some of you, past tense. But what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. So this is a past tense reality for these Corinthians. Because they had been washed, they had been justified uh, through the power of God, by the Spirit of our God. So this was a work that God had accomplished in them, and it made that reality a past tense. If any of those Corinthians would have um, rejected the faith and gone back to those sins, they would uh, have no promise of inheriting the kingdom of God, um, because... Those who have truly been washed and been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will persevere till the end and will repent of those sins and turn from them. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So um, at this point, I've heard mostly straw men when it comes to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Well, if you're going to define the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints as, so all those things 
happened. We're agreed on that, that we're justified, sanctified, washed by the spirit of our God and by our Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. If you're going to go, that's where we are. That's great. And we're all need to be subjected to the warnings that are in scripture. And because I'm trusting in the grace of God as well. But when I hear him go flee fornication, I go, I need to flee fornication. And that's something for me to do, even though I'm joined to the Lord and one spirit with them. Then when he says, add to your faith, virtue and knowledge and self-control and all the other things he says to add, and he goes, you need to do this with diligence so you can make your calling and election sure and so you can have an abundant entrance, that that is speaking to me so that I will, like Paul, discipline my body bring it under subjection so that having preached to others, I don't end up being disqualified. If what you mean by that, it, it, by perseverance of the saints, is that what I just described, then that's fine. I would agree with perseverance of the saints. Okay, but so I've never heard it really expressed like that. I've always heard it expressed that the elect are guaranteed to go all the way to the end. They are. Absolutely. The elect are guaranteed because they will be persevered by God and they will heed all those warnings. Um, in for, in Second Peter 1, you keep quoting that, uh, in verse 3, uh, before it tells us to go on to add, supplement our faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. In verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is the power of God sufficient at, to grant us all those things which pertain to life and godliness, which is what he then goes forward to talk about? The, the people that Peter is writing to, is, is the power of God here sufficient to actually take them through and allow them to add all these things to their faith? Well, that word sufficient, um, you're giving it a definition that I have to go, no, but I don't think that's the definition of sufficient. I think the definition of sufficient is he's given us through those great and precious promises and his provision of the divine nature, he's given us everything that we need to continue all the way to the end in obedience to God. But the very fact that Paul chooses to issue warnings to us gives us the knowledge that it is possible for us to turn from that. And I feel like we see people turn from that all the time. Now, let me ask you this question. Uh, in my opening statement, I mentioned that you're committing the logical fallacy of affirming the consequent, which is what you just did there. You just said that because Scripture warns us, therefore it is possible for the elect of God, for those who have been perfected by the work of Christ, to actually fall away. Um, explain to me how you're not committing the logical fallacy of affirming the consequent. Because the text does not actually say the elect of God can fall away. I don't consider that a logical fallacy. If I tell my child, if you touch this thing, again, I'm going to spank you. My child should go, if I touch this, I'm going to get spanked. When God says, if you defile your garments, you're not going to walk with me in white, then I go, I need to not defile my garments so that I may walk with him in white. According to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, who obeys that warning from God? The seed that falls in the thorny, the rocky, or the path, or the seed that falls in the good soil? 
I think we determine whether we're good soil or rocky by yeah. whether or not we let by whether or not we let the cares of this world overcome our faith or whether we don't. So once again, please clarify how you're not affirming the consequence because I gave you the reason for the warnings. Uh, the warnings will not be heeded by uh, those who have a false faith, um, who do not have a faith granted to them by God, Philippians 129. Uh, they will not persevere. They will fall from a essentia to the gospel. Uh, but those who have a God-given fiducia, uh, heart um, trust in the gospel and the saving work of Christ will not fall away because it's God who perseveres them till the end. Um, explain to me, because the, the passages don't that you're bringing up do not actually say that the elect of God can become not the elect of God. And that, uh, and this goes in complete violation to all the texts I read you by Jesus, who says that he loses absolutely none that are given to him by the Father. Um, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father sent me draws him, and I will raise him on the last day. Um, all those that are drawn by God will be raised. Uh, scripture makes that very, very clear. Um, and those texts of Scripture are warning passages, which... Uh, are not heated by the non-elect, but are heated by the elect. Um, explain to me how you're not going back and affirming your presupposition uh, from these texts that have a consequent that would come from your presupposition. From everything I hear you saying, here's the difference. I don't think you or I can know that we're among the elect until we've continued to the end. And that's why Peter says, to do all those things so that you can make your calling and election sure. Okay, so when Scripture says, for example, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, so you're saying that's not possible? No, I'm saying you can know that you're the child of God, right? I'm saying that God can give you the spirit and equip you with everything you need to get to the end, and then you can despise his grace insult the spirit of God and turn away from what he has given you. And you will prove yourself not to be of the elect, even though you had the spirit and the assurance of the spirit. And that that's what Hebrews says in chapter 10, when it talks about uh, despising the spirit of grace and turning, you know, that's Hebrews 10, the, the end yeah. of it, when it talks about that. In Acts chapter um Seven, I believe, in Stephen's sermon to the uh, Jews, he said that you always resist the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Um, man, naturally, in his own state, will always resist the Holy Spirit of God. Um, they will always reject the offer of grace. They will always do that. Um, but once again, all your answers are, are affirming the consequent and you're just assuming your presupposition when I give you repeatedly reasons for why the warning passages are in Scripture. Um, they are there uh, as a means that God gives to persevere his saints. God doesn't persevere his saints in a vacuum. He does it through means. It's the same way as God calls his elect through the means of the proclamation of the gospel. That is why it is necessary for us to proclaim the gospel in the same way it is necessary for a Christian to repent of their sins 
even being the true elect of God, to repent of their sins and persevere to the end uh, and heed the warning passages of Scripture, because that is the means that God uses to persevere his saints till the end. I guess I feel like you're going, there are people who don't heed the warnings in the end. They look every bit like us, but they don't heed the warnings in the end. But for some reason, you're going, that can't be me. And so I guess I'm, I'm looking and going, I, I, I feel like you're saying two things. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going, those people who are not of the elect, who, okay, here, let me ask you a question. I've got a friend. Okay. He was active super active, evangelistic, probably about a year ago. Um, and he would have gone, the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. God has spoken through me in prophecy. We have this great experience with God. I've prayed. I've seen answers to prayer. And in the last few months, he became an agnostic. Okay. So what would you, say, what you, would you say about that person so I can go, what are you, what, so I can understand what you're trying to tell me? Okay. Well, the first thing I would actually ask is, um, I don't know the person individually uh, as an individual, so I don't, I don't know them, so I can't talk about an individual that I don't know. But I would simply ask this question. Was the person a synergist like you are? Probably. Okay. Um, that would be one thing I would say is that that person is not trusting in the saving work of Christ. He's not, his confidence is not in the work of Christ to persevere him till the end. Um, I think this is a gospel issue that we're talking about here. Um, and and so that is, that's one thing that's very important. Now, um, are there monergists that fall away? Uh, absolutely. Uh, what I've repeatedly seen though, from those who said that they were monergistic at one point and a fellow either way from the faith, is that I have yet to hear one that actually properly represents um, the doctrines of grace after supposedly holding to them. Um, and so that would be one who truly has a faith given from God, Philippians 1 29, it's been granted to you to believe. Um, and Ephesians two verse eight and nine, that faith is a gift from God. Um, if those that have a faith that has been granted by them to them by God, um, will trust in the saving work of Christ alone and not their own efforts. And uh, they will persevere till the end. And that is because that's what Scripture teaches. So and I don't determine doctrine from experience. It, okay, I, I think that's a bad idea. <laughs> you think it's a bad idea to not determine doctrine from experience? Yeah. So we should, we should use experience. Our experience should trump Scripture. So when scripture says that Christ doesn't lose any, you see people leave the faith. You therefore conclude that Christ can lose. I see people walk away from the faith and I go, they were never of us. Absolutely. So, right. So we, we agree on that. The, the issue is, well, cause like you, you hold basically on. hold on that completely. If you say you agree with that, then that completely collapses. You believe in the perseverance of the saints. If you believe that anyone who left us was never truly of us, then you're affirming the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Uh, well, I think there's a lot of side things that people who say they hold to that doctrine 
reject that I would go, you're, you're rejecting clear commands and teachings of scripture because, you know, like, okay, so you go, I have the witness of the spirit. So what purpose do, do those warnings serve in your life if you think that you can't fall away? Uh, well, first of all, um, the warnings are there. I will heed them, but I give all the credit and honor and glory to God for the reason that I do heed them. Okay. Um, if you actually, I'm going to go back to your previous statement because I think the the debate's actually over if, if you're actually going to hold to that. First uh, John 2.19, uh, those that went out from us were never of us. Uh, if you hold to anyone who's fallen away was never truly a Christian, then you have just affirmed the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Is uh, is that actually your position? First John two nineteen says what it says. I can't take a different position than First John two nineteen. Well, then you believe the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If okay, I don't mind the definition. I don't. I don't mind going, okay, if perseverance of the saints means that we still have to warn the people that are in front of us and ourselves and that we need to, I guess you've, if you're going to go give that definition that I just heard of perseverance, if you believe 1 John 2.19, you believe perseverance of the saints, then I do. But that doesn't resolve the monergist, synergist uh, issue. I don't believe that you can consistently hold to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints without being a monarchist. Uh, but that's a separate discussion right now. We're talking about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Um, if your definition now, is first John two nineteen, then, then if that's the only definition definition, then I do hold to perseverance of the saints. Well, the perseverance of the saints is that um, if uh, none of those given by the father to the son will fall away, and anyone who does fall away demonstrates that they were not given by the Father to the Son. Um, let, let me actually read uh, I don't object to what you just said. Um, let me read the definition of perseverance of the saints that I wrote on my website, which is the uh, I, my view of perseverance of the saints is no different than any other Reformed theologian. Read R.C. Sproul, read John MacArthur, read John Piper. This is uh, or Calvin himself, uh, but this is the definition I've written on my website. Perseverance of the saints. This doctrine teaches that God will persevere all his elect to the end. It teaches that the elect of God will continue in the faith till the end of their life because their faith is a gift from God and Christ is mediating and interceding for them. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And so if one abandons the faith, does not continue uh, in the faith, they demonstrate they were never of God, that they were never truly a Christian, that they were never born again, um, and uh, that is that is First John two nineteen. So, uh, if if you affirm that doctrine, then our discussion um, needs to go to uh, the sovereignty of God, needs to go to the atonement. Uh, needs to go to the depravity of man next, because if you actually affirm that doctrine, I don't think you can consistently do so from a synergistic position. Uh, and I'll explain why in a little bit. But if you actually affirm that, 
um, that none who left us were ever of us. That is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Okay. Um, now, the reason I don't uh, believe that you can consistently hold to that is because a synergist typically holds up and elevates the almighty will of man and elevates it above all, all everything. Uh, the, the will of man is what determines uh, history, is what determines uh, his own salvation and everything, not the will of God. Um, so the question is, if you believe now that when a person is saved, they will persevere to the end by the power of God. The question I have for you then is, did that person lose their free will? You will probably have to ask that question over again. I did not understand what you were asking. Okay, let me start this over again then. So if, if you hold, which you just affirmed, that a true Christian will persevere to the end through the power of God, did the Christ, did the person who was born again... That is not the same as what you said. So no, I do not affirm that, quote, the true Christian is always going to continue to the end. Okay, I thought you just said First John 2.19 that those that went out from us were never truly of us. Yeah, and then I would say, so yes, Christians? if they're the elect... They will continue to the end because God foreknows is going to continue to the end. And they're only elected if they're inside of Christ. But I think a person can be a saved, true Christian, having the spirit of God, and they can fall away. And at that okay. point, they're okay, not well, of the elect. Okay, so let me ask you this. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, you're, I'm a little confused here. So you're saying somebody can be a true Christian but not elect. Yes. I okay. think you need to prove your election by continuing to the end. So, so what does it mean to be a true Christian then? Define true Christian. That you've been born again, that you have the Spirit of God, that you've been empowered to live free from sin. Okay. So, for example, uh, Jesus says in John 3, 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Um, it says in 1 John 5, 1, everyone that believes that Jesus Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves him who has been born of him. Um, yes, I think you can be born of so God and then die. It says also in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith that overcomes the world. So does, does the one who has been born of God, does he, does he always overcome the world? No. He doesn't. So in 1 John 5, 4, where it says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So you're saying that not everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world? Yeah, I'm saying that that that, that uh, John said right there in 1 John 5, that he's distinguishing. But whenever John speaks... Mm -hmm. John is, you, you mentioned that present indicative tense. So mm -hmm. you already know what the difference between a present tense in Greek and a present tense in English would mean? Yes, yes. Okay, which refers to continuous action, to something that is yeah. ongoing. That is with the uh, ekton theon gagenete. It is referring to the gagenite there, having been born of God. 
Okay. It says overcomes the world. So you're talking about the word overcomes? No, I'm talking about the way that John speaks about us. That, yeah, it, it is typical for someone that is born of God to go all the way through to the end. But it is also true that a person can, as Paul put it, if you sow to this, if you, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. So, so there comes a point where you are no longer born of God. And okay, so in 1 John 5, 4, you're saying that John is saying that it is only typical for everyone who has been born of God to overcome the world. Yeah, I think, I think John speaks in these really big absolutes because he's refuting Gnosticism. But if you're going to interpret John in such a way that he conflicts with Paul, you're not understanding John correctly. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so we're going to go back to 1 John 2.19. So you're saying a true Christian can fall away. So when, when John is writing, they went out from us, but they were not of us. You're saying that they really were of us, or they're a true Christian who's not truly of us? I'm saying that they turned away from what was going on and that it's exactly comparable to what Jesus was saying in Matthew 7. You've got these people who are doing these things, who are walking, but in the end, they didn't do what is good. And he goes, I never knew you. He never knew them, right? He never knew them. And he says that to people that, he actually had acquaintance with. What does it Think say? Think of the parable of the virgins, the 10 virgins. They're all waiting for a groom. Is it really possible that when they come knock at the door and the groom goes, I never knew you, that he actually never had any contact with them, has no idea? Who no, no, no. That's not how the word gnosko is used. Uh, in fact, gnosko is, it means have a relationship with, to know personally. And so... Are you saying that those in Matthew 7 that you just said, that they give all the things, the reasons why that they should, uh, you know, look at all the things that I've done. And he said, never, I never knew you. I, I never, you're saying that he did at one point because they were true Christians at one point. He did know them. I think that people who think that they are true Christians and who are following God, which could be any of us, and fall away, that in the end, Jesus goes, I never knew you. But if there, does Jesus know all true Christians? Jesus knows everyone. No. In the context of the text that you brought up, you just said, you just conflated the term know there in two different ways. We're using it in a specific way, in the same way Jesus is using it in Matthew 7. So you just conflated the term. So does Jesus know in a personal way, in the way of Matthew 7 that you just quoted, does he know every Christian in that every true Christian in that way. Uh, yeah. I, I, he does. Yeah. Okay, so he said, you said that they were true Christians before because of all these works. Um, but he says he never knew them. Yeah, he says he never knew them. Okay, so you're saying that he did know them at some point? I'm saying that we don't know until the day we stand before Christ, whether he's going to say, I knew you or I didn't know you, unless we do the things that he's given us to do to make our calling and election sure. Okay, you didn't really answer my question. 
Okay, I'm going to back off on that because Matthew chapter 7, he's talking about people who always did iniquity. So those people, I, I'm not going to go that he ever knew them. That's probably not the right. Let's go to those people fell away. The end, uh, um, it's at the end of Matthew. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to find the exact uh, Matthew. Find the passage here real quick. Um, uh, let's see here. Okay, let's see. Let's find it here. Um, okay, Matthew twenty four thirty six, I believe. No, that's not right. Trying to find the passage. Um, All right, I'm, I'm not finding it, but it's it's the one where he said uh, uh, they they talked about all the things they had been that they had done, and he said, um, "I never knew you." Um, it's in Matthew seven. Well, it's also in Matthew seven, but there's another there's another place for, uh, in the synoptics where it's at, which I wanted to go to, but I'm not finding it. But um, so here's I'm, the here's the point yeah, that I'm always getting at, which mm-hmm. is that. Christians are warned to live a certain way. And if you're going to go through the grace of God and the trust of God, I absolutely cannot. Those warnings basically do not apply to me because I'm going to follow all those warnings. Mm -hmm. Then you're in a position that Paul did not agree with, that Paul was warning people because he wanted them to be warned that whether there's, True, not true. The, the idea is that Paul is going, you need to have a healthy fear of God, that you who think you stand need to take heed lest you fall. What Calvinist are you aware of that does not preach uh, the warning passages and warns Christians or professing Christians to not fall away and to heed the warnings of God? I... I can't say that. I mean, all, all reformed people proclaim this, so it's a complete straw man. You keep bringing it up, but it's not. It's a complete straw man. We all proclaim the fear of God. We proclaim that anyone who falls away will not find salvation. They must persevere until the end. We declare yeah, that. Yeah, but, in but the at end, the same time, we basically went. That doesn't apply to me because I have the witness of the Spirit, and I. When did I? Whoa, 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 whoa! Those when, no matter what. 
that's a straw man. I never said that those passages don't apply to me. I said they absolutely do apply to me. The if right, you're saying but that. My trust but is in go, Christ. When you go, that can't happen to me. You're not giving heed to them, whether you're saying that you are or not. My confidence is in Christ that He will persevere me to the end, and that I will heed those warnings. Uh, and I do heed those warnings. I pay attention to them. I look at them. They're my. They're the work of sanctification of God in my life and in the life of any person that holds to the doctrines of grace and truly believes in them. Um, it is the means that God uses to persevere us until the end. I have a question for you. In Isaiah 46.10, it says, uh, I am God, I am Yahweh, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, I will accomplish all my purpose. Um, it says in Psalm that the Lord does whatever he pleases in the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that God accomplishes everything that he purposes to accomplish? Yes. Okay. Do you, is it your opinion that it's God's purpose to save every single person? I believe it's God's desire. No, I don't believe it is his purpose. Okay. So in the atoning work of Christ, when he died on the cross to save his people from their sins, um, and Colossians 2.14, he canceled the record of debt, which was against them. Did, was it God's purpose to save every single person with the atoning work of Christ, or was it to save his elect with the atoning work of Christ? His will was to save everyone, to but save only, everyone. Those, only those who respond to that okay. call that he foreknew. It is only those who actually reap the benefit of it, but everyone has the opportunity to reap the benefit of it. Okay, so, so you're saying it was God's purpose in the atoning work of Christ to save everyone. I'm saying it was his will. It was his will, but not his purpose. Yeah, there's a, there's a distinction to be made with there's things that God goes, I want this to happen and I'm going to make that happen. And there's things I wish would happen, and I'm going to leave it up to the free will of people as to whether that actually happens or not. Okay, so you in Isaiah 46, 10, it says, I am Yahweh, I am God, there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, I will accomplish all my purpose. You're saying that that is actually saying that God has certain things that he wishes to happen, but he just leaves that up to the will of man. Okay, let me get to Isaiah 46, 10, which I just got there. My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, or all my will. And You just said that he doesn't accomplish all his will. I am saying that, yeah, I think there are things that God wants that don't happen. He wants every, he's giving people time to repent because he wants everyone to come to repentance, but not everyone does come to repentance. So, so he then doesn't accomplish all of his will. He doesn't accomplish. No, his will is that he created the universe the way that he created it. His will is that people would have free will and an opportunity to choose to accept what he said or not to accept what he said. That will is most certainly happening. He okay. would prefer it if we would just all respond to the gospel, just like all of us would prefer it if everybody would respond to the gospel, but they don't all do that. Okay. So, so in Isaiah 46, 10, 
you're saying that, so how do you exegete Isaiah 46.10? I go, he knew from, he knew the end from the beginning. He knows the things that are going to happen, that his counsel will stand and he's going to do all his pleasure. And his pleasure is what I just described. His pleasure is he's going to present an opportunity for everybody to be saved because that's what he wants for everyone to come to repentance. And that will is being done. And that's what he wants, but he doesn't get that. He wants people to have free will and he wishes that all those people who have free will would respond. But no, he does not get that because he gave us free will. Okay, you made a lot of assertions there in that statement. Can you substantiate that with Scripture, that God wants us to have free will uh, more than he wants to um, accomplish his purposes? I think almost every page of Scripture assumes our free will Mm -hmm. by saying things to us. No, I know that you assume it. Can you demonstrate it with Scripture? Yeah, Ezekiel 33 tells all the wicked— well, he tells us to tell all the wicked that they should repent and do what is right. Absolutely. To say that to someone without free will is ridiculous. Um, it is God's prescriptive will uh, for all men what they ought to do. Um, and that is what God declares for us to preach. And he gives grace to those whom he wills in order to uh, for them to actually repent and to believe. So that... It, your position is simply assumed in that statement. You, you didn't substantiate it. My position is substantiated everywhere where it says things like, I wish that all, I desire that all would come to repentance. And that's why that he desires all to come to repentance. You're speaking specifically of second Peter three, nine, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's actually exegete second Peter three, nine. Um, so who is second Peter written to Christians, Christians. Very good. Okay. So in the passage here in second Peter chapter three, he's talking about the day of the Lord will come and he's speaking to Christian. This is the second letter that I'm now writing to you beloved. He's writing in second Peter three, one in both of them. I'm stirring you up to sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the Holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and savior through your apostles knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, what is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things will continue as they were from the beginning. They deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water, through water by the word of God, and that by the means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. So he's just got done talking about how people are saying he's never going to come. Where's the sign of his coming? And they deliberately overlook that God destroyed the earth in the past, that he brought judgment. And he's writing to Christians here, don't overlook this one fact, beloved that the day that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, his promise to come in judgment, 
as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Who's the you here? Beloved, the beloved towards you. Not willing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He's speaking of the elect of God. The only reason that God is delaying his coming of judgment is he has an elect people that still need to come to repentance. If this passage is referring to all people, every single person, then God will never come again in judgment. Because Peter is saying here, the reason that the Lord has not come yet is because he's not willing that any of you should perish, but that you should come to repentance. He is not willing that any of his elect should perish. If, if this applies to every single person who is alive, then God will never come in this context unless every single person comes to repentance. I don't think it says that. I, I think it says so, that so God is not wanting coming. to give everybody an opportunity to repent. That's the, that's. So following Peter's argument then, is God never going to come unless everybody comes to repentance? No, I think there's going to come a time when the, there's been sufficient time for, for but you said, people to have you a said chance. This, you said this applies to everyone. And the reason Peter is saying here that God has delayed his coming is because he's not willing that any of the elect should perish, but should also come to repentance. If you apply that, that's not willing that any, uh, the any there is speaking of every single person who lives, then Peter's argument is meaningless. I don't think that's true. I, I look at it and I go, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So he's giving more time still for people to have and, a chance to come to repentance, that to assume that that they have to come to repentance before he comes back, that he's going to wait till every single person on earth repents until he comes back. I just don't see that that's what it says. Okay, so isn't Peter saying that this is the reason the Lord is delaying his coming? To give everybody an opportunity to repent. Okay. Because uh, he's not willing that any should perish. That is why he has delayed his coming. Okay? Right? It, that he's delaying. Yes. He's delaying it because he's not willing that any should perish, right? Yeah. And if this, any applies to everyone, then, then, the, then he will never return uh, because his will is that not a single person would, 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 uh, would Despite perish. Despite his will that no one should perish... He leaves us with free will. He gives us opportunity to come to repentance. He doesn't just he 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 doesn't just decree this person that person is doesn't even have a chance to come to repentance. What kind of a picture of God is that? Okay, I think I provided sufficient exegesis of Second uh, Peter three nine. I don't I don't believe that that passage uh, in any way um, uh, means at all that God is delaying his coming because uh, he wants every single person, whoever lives to come to repentance, that it, it, he's willed it in a decretive way. Um, so um, I was going to ask you, um, let's see here on your website. Um, you wrote this, um, Um, once uh, it is established that being born again is not equivalent to going to heaven, the question 
of whether a Christian can lose his salvation disappears. Um, this the salvation we're talking about going to heaven is a salvation that a Christian does not yet have. You can lose or keep what you do not have. In, um, in John 3.36, uh, just after Jesus had gotten done talking about being born again, he says in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's ace, ton, um, uh, eke, uh, zoane, uh, ionion, which is in the present active indicative. They have eternal life. Right. He, eternal life. he who is believing is having eternal life. They're both in the, in the present tense. He that is believing is having eternal life. Which has brings, eternal life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's in so the present, if, that is in the present tense too. And mm-hmm. the present tense should always be translated with something that's ongoing in English. So he that is believing mm-hmm. is having eternal life. And the reason is because that eternal life is inside mm-hmm. the Son of God. And he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Uh-huh. So John is the only apostle in the, New Te- in the New Testament that talks about eternal life as a present tense possession. Paul always talks about it in the future as something that's mm-hmm. going to be given to us. John, because of this passage in 1 John 10 and forward, he, well, verse 12 is at the heart of that. He that has the Son has life, and he that does not have the Son of God does not have life. So that life is in his Son, and as long as we have the Son of God in us, then we have that life as well. So our present tense possession of eternal life hinges on the fact that the Son of God lives inside of us. So we have eternal life as long as we are living in the sun with the sun inside of us. If we turn away from that, if we do not continue in faith, if we do not continue, we walk away, we no longer have the son of God and we no longer have eternal life. Eternal does not refer to our possession. It it refers to the state of the life. That life is eternal. Paul talks about that life as a reward for doing good. He does that in Romans 2, and he does that in Galatians chapter 6, um, where he says, he who sows to the Spirit will, future, reap eternal life, because it doesn't become our possession until we've passed through the judgment and been given eternal life from God. Okay. Until then, we're dependent on having our life because we have the Son. That life is in His Son. Okay. So is this life that a believing one has, is it eternal? Yeah, it's the life that's eternal, not our possession of it. Okay. So we have eternal life. It says we have. That's a possessive. That's, a, that's possessive. We have eternal life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever so, is believing in the Son of God is having eternal life. And that's the way... The present tense is supposed to be translated in Greek. That's first-year Greek. It's, it's what they tell you to do with the present tense is okay. to translate it in that way. So, so let me ask you this. So um, a person, that, a true believer who has a faith from God, who is believing in the Son, who has present um, active indicative eternal life, um, 
you're saying that they could end up not having eternal life. I'm saying so, that so, that life so is the question, and you could end up not having the son of God. Yes. Okay. So you could end up not having eternal life. So the question then is how was that? How did you have eternal life when you believed? That life is in his son. He that has the son has the life and he that does not have the son does not have a life. That's what first John five twelve says. So, so we we can have eternal life at one point, and then later on not have eternal life. If that's the case, then that was not an eternal life that we had. It was an eternal life that we have because it's the life that's eternal. It's not our possession of it that is eternal. And as a matter of fact, that's exactly the issue: is that God equips us, gives us power, so that we can so to the spirit, endure to the end, so that we don't grow weary in doing good, because in the end, we're going to reap an eternal life that's not just in the Son, it's in us. And that's something we need to prove worthy of, because God is not looking for another rebellion like he had with Satan in the beginning, an everlasting living being that has been given immortality, but who is not pure, who has sin inside of themselves. And that's the reason that he wants us to be worthy before he lets us walk with him in white, because it will no longer be that we have the son, and that's the reason we have the life. He will actually give us eternal life at the judgment so that we become immortal creatures who cannot die. That's why he gives us his time on earth, that we can prove ourselves worthy of immortality. Okay, I want you to turn to um, uh, John eleven twenty six. Uh, Jesus says, "I am the resurrection and the life." Beginning in verse twenty five. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. He's talking about eternal life there. So you're saying that one who truly does live and believe in him can lose that possession of eternal life and actually have eternal death. Because he's speaking of eternal death here. He makes that clear in verse 25. Yeah, which is why I, I'm sorry that the Greek was written the way that the Greek is written and it doesn't get translated very well into English. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one that is believing in me currently is believing me and goes on believing me. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever is living and believing in me shall never die. And I do believe that. But when you cease living and believing in him, that promise for you goes away because well, you are not living and believing in him anymore. Exactly. Here's the, here's the thing. The person uh, never actually did believe in, in the way that scripture here is speaking um, in Christ. He never actually did. So he never had eternal life. He had the son. He was, if someone is living and believing in Jesus and has Jesus inside of him, Jesus has eternal life. John talks about eternal life. Like we have it right now. 
So and he you says think- that because we can have the spirit of God in us, but Paul never talks about us having eternal life already. So you believe somebody that- who has a false faith uh, that does not persevere because they were never of us. Uh, actually no, I'm saying Jesus that someone who has a faith that it's not false, that you can have okay. a true faith and then turn from that true faith. So you can have a true faith, and so then that invalidates. So a true faith here. So you could you would actually say here, everyone who lives and and has a true faith in me shall never die. So you're saying that somebody who has a true faith in Christ can actually die. Yeah, if they stop having a true faith in Christ, yes. How did you not just contradict what Jesus said? Because Jesus said, he that is living and believing in me will never die. That means it's an ongoing thing. You stop living, you stop living and believing in him, and you don't have that anymore. Now, you can say that's, you know, that that can't happen. But in Hebrews, we read, that there are people who tasted of the heavenly gift. They partook of the Holy Spirit, which means they were partaking of Jesus as well. They tasted the good word of God, the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away, they can fall away. If they do, can't renew them to repentance, it says. But people who have had that faith inside of them, who are living and believing in Jesus, who have this, you will never die. When they stop living and believing, they lose all those promises of God that are inside of him. And Hebrews talks about that. The whole book is centralized on, you know, don't be like the Israelites that turned and fell away. The whole book of Hebrews is centralized on the perfecting high priestly office of Jesus that it actually accomplishes. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In Hebrews chapter 6, what it is speaking of is the reason it actually says, for they cannot be restored to faith because they would be crucifying the Lord of glory all over again. Um, They would be crucifying him all over again in that passage that you referenced, which is why it says they cannot be restored to salvation. What the author of Hebrews is actually saying is, if that if that somebody that was truly enlightened, truly tasted, if they actually fell away, they couldn't be restored because that offering of Christ was once for all. Uh, It actually accomplished its intention. It perfected those for whom it was made. And it actually accomplished it. And so that passage there does not, I'm sorry, does not fit within your theology. You would have to then conclude from your own theology that one who actually fell away could never actually repent again. Well, why would that uh, be a problem that's since that's what that verse says? Well, and that's the point. What my point is, is that passage is not speaking of that. That passage is speaking that if there are those who are who have truly tasted of the heavenly gift, um, if they would actually fall away, those who have been actually perfected, if they would actually fall away, Christ would have to be sacrificed all over again. For them to repent to- a second time. Exactly, because the sacrifice of Christ actually accomplished their salvation, and so if which accomplished their sanctification, their justification accomplished everything for them, and so if they would fall away, that would invalidate the sacrifice and the atoning work of Christ, and he would have to be sacrificed all over again. Uh, and the writer of Hebrews is saying that 
that those who have truly tasted of the heavenly gift cannot fall away. Uh, because if they did, they would have to be, Christ would have to be sacrificed all over again. Well, then he uh, should have, he should have said that rather than saying, if we fall away, because this whole thing, yeah, okay, it's written to glorify Jesus and say, you know, he replaces everything. This thing is written to Jews and it says, don't go back to that old Absolutely. Judaism. And if you do, or for example, in Hebrews 10, you turn away from all that, then there's no sacrifice for you. Yeah, not only that, you know, of how much sore punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, an unholy thing, and has done despot to the spirit of grace. So it's he tells them, you had all this, don't don't fall away, don't lose your confidence. You know, and so so he warns them verse 35 don't cast away your confidence which has a great recompense of reward and so that whole book is going you go back to judaism you know like paul said in galatians 3 if you're circumcised you've you've fallen from grace he goes if you return back to judaism you've you've thrown away everything that you had so I'm just saying when John talks, he talks in this present tense that goes, as long as you're doing this, as long as you're inside of this believing thing, then you won't be committing sin. You will be obeying the commandments of God and you will have all these promises inside of Christ because you're inside of Christ, because you have him inside of you. But now here in Hebrews, the writer talks about the fact that you've done despot to the Spirit of God. You've, you've rejected the Son of God who sanctified you. But now you've turned away from that. And that's, that's going to cost you everything that you had. And as a matter of fact, it's not even a one-time thing. If you are really in true faith, in true possession of the Spirit of God, and you turn away from all that, you're done. There's not a second chance for you. Okay. In Hebrews 10, 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Did the offering of Christ actually perfect anyone for all time? Those who are being sanctified, they are perfected and well actually perfected if we're going to go that means we're perfect in the sight of god so that there's absolutely nothing other than we're walking with christ and therefore he's not imputing to us sins then no i'm not going to go that is a correct translation of perfected and as far as forever yeah if you don't turn away which he just goes on 10 verses later to say can happen all right. Um, okay. Um, is there anything you wanted to close with? No, I'm happy with that. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, uh, Paul, for uh, joining us uh, today. Uh, appreciate it, uh, taking the time. And uh, uh, hopefully I, my prayer is that this uh, discussion was helpful for anyone uh, out there listening. Uh, this will be on the podcast. Uh, we will um, going to get rid of the, the first uh, part of the show that uh, – 
that Where locked Paul up. and I had a mis yeah we had a miscommunication on time so um, so it was uh, it was uh, fun Paul I enjoyed the time I uh, hope you think uh, seriously about some of these things and um, and uh, pray the same for anyone else out there so uh, thanks everyone for joining us and go off the air. Through Adam's offense